Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 369. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome to the new world. Yes, 2015. Here we go. Let's hope it is. I'm stretching and yawning now when I'm talking. Let's hope it's a fine one. And this year, we have a fantastic sponsor, Octagon Technology. There you go. We will be working with Octagon Technology throughout the year. Octagon, if you remember, helped you know get the Kickstarter for SofaCon 2 up and running. And this year we will be sponsored by that fantastic company. And the main thing is, you know what I mean, they are science fiction fans, which is absolutely fantastic. Clive Catton is a you know true and true Starship Sofa fan as well, which makes it all the more better. A great combination. Just to give you a heads up, Octagon Technology have been going since 1995 to 2015. Wow, 20 years. That's a massive time in the kind of computer IT industry. 20 years helping people and companies with IT projects and problems. Go on there. So we are very welcome to have on board Octagon Technologies throughout 2015. Welcome Clive and Diane to the fold. Got a fantastic show today. We are highlighting Cat Rambo, science fiction and fantasy horror writer extraordinaire. We've got three stories by Cat as well. How cool is that? I'll tell you what's coming in today's show then. First up, we have Mr. Mark Zickery, Mr. Sci-Fi Man with those classic fact articles. This one, he's talking about all about Ray Harryhausen. 
Then the first story by Cat Rambo is Bots de More. Then the next one will be Mother's World by Cat Rambo. And the final one is Dagger and Mask. There you go. What a fantastic show lined up for you. So we'll kick straight off with Mr. Sci-Fi Man, Mark Zickery. Mark, sir. Guys, it's Mark Zickery, Mr. Sci-Fi, also known as Mark Zickery of Space Command. And today I'm taking a request. Wintersbone, one of our Mr. Sci-Fi subscribers, has asked me to do my uh, commentary and reminiscence about Ray Harryhausen. So this is for you, Wintersbone, and all, uh, all of us other wonderful Ray Harryhausen fans, and uh, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do it. This may be a long one as well, so definitely grab your favorite beverage or uh, whatever, you, uh, <laughs> whatever gives you comfort, and, and we'll get into this right now. So, I, I hope uh, that you all know who Ray Harryhausen is. If you do not, immediately go and watch one of his amazing and wonderful films. Those would include Mysterious Island, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, uh, Clash of the Titans, the, the, the original one, uh, on and on, First Man on the Moon. There are so many wonderful, wonderful films that, 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 that Harryhausen made. But here's, here's what makes him uh, unique and and just one of my favorite uh, people of all time. When I was a kid, growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, particularly early on when I was a little kid, there were really only two filmmakers who were making wonderful, wonder-filled science fiction and fantasy films. And, uh, and those two men were George Powell, uh, science fiction film producer George Powell, and Ray Harryhausen. And... Uh, you know, nowadays when you see films that are even good science fiction films, even something entertaining like Guardians of the Galaxy, these are, or, or the new Star Wars film, uh, they may be uh, made by people who have great enthusiasm for the projects, but ultimately, their product. The studio is putting them out to make hundreds of millions or even over a billion dollars, as with Avatar. They're, they're looking at everything as part of the deal uh, to make toys, to make video games, to make ancillary products. They're seeing it essentially as something they can market. But... When I was a kid, George Powell and Ray Harryhausen were both doing films that came from an enormous personal enthusiasm. You could tell that they just delighted in this kind of story and this kind of film. And today we're going to be talking about Ray Harryhausen. Now, I'll, I'll talk about George Powell in another one of my, my Mr. Sci-Fi uh, pieces. But for now, let's talk about Harryhausen, because I actually worked with Harryhausen. He and I uh, did a project, we're working on a project called um, Ray Harryhausen Presents, which I'll, I'll talk about in the, in the next few minutes. But, but let me just start with my first experience of Harryhausen. When I was a kid, uh, when I was, gosh, gosh, I must have been seven or eight years old, there was a summer where one of the movie theaters here in Los Angeles had a deal where I think for a dollar uh, a mother could buy tickets for their kids for 10, uh, 10 movies, 10 movie days. And, and they would show movies that were not noom films, but were fairly recent. They were all science fiction and fantasy films. And that's how I first saw Jason the Argonauts, uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, many films that I love now. And, uh, and Ray Harryhausen, it was very clear very early on, the moment you saw a Harryhausen film, you knew that you were in the presence of a master and, and someone uh, who was very, very special. And, and uh, many of you, have, I'm sure, have your favorite Ray Harryhausen moments, the battle with the skeletons on the staircase or, or um, the Eohippus uh, in, is, in Valley of Guanji is one of my wife's favorite, this miniature prehistoric horse that, that Harryhausen did. And, uh, but, but I think what makes him singular, because I can think of another one of this, because many films have the director's stamp on them, like Spielberg, or a writer's stamp on them, or a producer's stamp on them, like George Powell. 
Ray Harryhausen was not a writer or a producer or a director. He was a special effects guy, specifically a stop-motion animator. And, uh, and, and yet these were Ray Harryhausen films. At one point, one of the directors on one of his films was trying to pull rank, and, and that director was, uh, was read The Riot Act by Harryhausen's producer, uh, Charles Schneer, which, by the way, is a great name for a producer. And, uh, and he very quickly came to understand that Ray Harryhausen was the creative force on those films. And uh, Harryhausen decided what the subject would be. He decided what the set pieces would be. He basically had uh, total creative control over these films. And, uh, and I, of course, met Harryhausen at conventions. He, was a, he would come to many of the conventions. Another thing I love about science fiction. And, uh, and, and also, uh, he and Ray Bradbury were friends from their teen years, from when they were first 16 or so. And so both of them talked to me about the beginnings of that friendship and how that friendship developed. And I was very, very lucky to, to have these two great and amazing men uh, in my life. And both of them were very gentle spirits, very loving and, and enthusiastic uh, people. Uh, Ray Bradbury once uh, said, said, lean forward and I'll tell you a secret. And, and he whispered in my ear, I'm 13 years old. And I think that was true of Harryhausen also. Uh, but one, one thing that Harryhausen told me about the two of them was he said, uh, Ray always liked the future, I always preferred the past. And although he did science fiction films, uh, including First Man in the Moon, and he also tried to get a stop-motion version of War of the Worlds made, and you can actually see some of that test footage on some of the DVDs of his work, uh, he, he liked mythology, greatly liked mythology. Uh, so Jason... Uh, of Jason and the Argonauts, Sinbad. These were these were characters who were ready made for him, and uh, so so essentially, what the beginning of Ray Harryhausen's career was uh, when he was a teenager, when he was around thirteen years old. Uh, the original King Kong came out in 1933, and Willis O'Brien was the great stop motion animation of that era, and and King Kong was his great great masterpiece. And uh, Harryhausen told me that he grew up in L.A. just as Ray Bradbury did, and. Uh, he was going by a, a movie theater, and if you ever watch the original King Kong, most of King Kong is a, a, a little model about yay high, a stop-motion model, and that's Kong. Uh, and my friend uh, Bob Burns owns that that uh, armature of the original Kong. In fact, the Smithsonian offered him a million dollars for it, and he wouldn't sell it, uh, which I think is, again, a testament how, t- testament how much we all love these things and how, how much we're pure spirits in that way. It's not about money. It's never about money. It's always about the love of it. And... Um, so, uh, so Harryhausen told me that he was going. He was like 13 years old. and He was going by the movie theater, and and every now and then they'll have a close shot of King Kong in the original version. And there's a gigantic head uh, with with moving eyes and a moving mouth, and uh, and that was uh, and that was on exhibit in the front of the movie theater, the actual head from the production. And Harryhausen just walked up to that thing, and he couldn't get enough of it. And when he saw stop motion. Uh, in that film, he was determined to make his own stop motion project. So even as a teenager, he got a hold of a movie camera. I think it was a 60 millimeter camera, and uh, and and took his mom's old fur coat and cut it up and made made his own little. I think he made a cave bear. They started animating. He started making dinosaurs. And 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 Ray Bradbury was a huge fan of dinosaurs as well. And so they struck up a friendship because they both loved dinosaurs. And there was a science fiction cl- club called LOSFAS, the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Association. It's still in existence. And they became two of the, the founding members of that, of that organization. And so they would get together, they would hang out, they would talk about their big dreams, they would have dreams of becoming uh, amazing, famous, famous fantasists. And they both made it. They both succeeded. And they were friends until, until their deaths. They both made it into their 90s. And, uh, and their f- photos of them as old men hanging hanging around together, and you can you can see the, just the, the huge love they have for each other, and uh, 
So Harryhausen started working on stop motion, and, and, and in, in no time at all, his work came to the attention of Willis O'Brien, the great Willis O'Brien, whose nickname was Obie, and, uh, and O'Brien hired him to work on Mighty Joe Young, which was another film uh, with a stop motion animated uh, giant ape, not the size of Kong, but, 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 but amazingly um, rendered as well. And, and then uh, Harryhausen decided he would start making his own films. And, and one of the films he worked on was A Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which was based on a, a Ray Bradbury short story called The Lighthouse. <clears throat> Ray was um, walking along uh, the beach one night, and he saw the, the uh, skeletal remnants of a, of a roller coaster from the old uh, Ocean Park Pier, and he said, uh, there's a, a dinosaur skeleton. And he started uh, envisioning what would happen if, if the call of a lighthouse, the foghorn, uh, from a lighthouse would be a, a dinosaur's um, mating call, and it would call a dinosaur up out of the water. And the illustration of that magazine story, uh, a producer saw it and decided to make a movie of that, and Ray Harryhausen was hired to animate The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. This was in the 1950s. And, uh, and Harryhausen then went on to make these amazing films, and, and I, as I said, I started seeing them in my childhood because they were made in the 1950s and into the 60s. And the moment I saw Jason and, and the Argonauts, I was hooked. I just uh, loved that film, and I loved <clears throat> how the gods were presented. I was a huge fan of Greek and, and, and Roman mythology at that point. And uh, <clears throat> so, so you know, I, uh, my friend Mel Gildon says the golden age of science fiction is 13, and so all of us at that 13 or, or even younger, we find those things to speak to our heart. And uh, so, so Harryhausen went on to make all of these great films, and we all loved them. But, but by the time Star Wars came out, his methods were somewhat old-fashioned. And Clash of the Titans, you can now watch it and really enjoy it. The original, I, I vastly prefer it to the remake, the, the recent one, which was made for a hundred times the cost and has, uh, I think, I think one-hundredth of the charm. And, uh, but, and so you can watch Clash of the Titans now and enjoy it and see it as a companion piece to Jason and the Argonauts. But when it came out, in the late 70s, it seemed a little wheezy at that point. Its, it's, it's, uh, it's techniques seemed, seemed old-fashioned when you compared them to Star Wars and the amazing films that were coming out, uh, Aliens and <clears throat> Blade Runner. And so at that point, Harryhausen decided to stop making his own films and, uh, and then became sort of an advisor to the younger generation of, of filmmakers who all loved him, uh, from Tim Burton to Guillermo del Toro. I mean, all of us, how can you not love Ray Harryhausen? But uh, there was one point... <clears throat> in later years, where my friend Leonard Malton did a piece about Harryhausen and, and interviewed him and mentioned on Entertain Entertainment Tonight that he had never won an Oscar. <clears throat> well, there was a school teacher named Arnold Cunert who was watching this. And he said to his wife, he was watching this on TV, he had no context to Hollywood, he was, he was a, t a school teacher. And he said, that's terrible that Harryhausen has never won an Oscar. Someone should do something about that. And his wife... Uh, wonderfully, said, well, why don't you do something about it? <laughs> and, and what Arnold Cunard did was he got up a petition and he reached out to people like Tim Burton, like Tom Hanks was a huge Harryhausen devotee, and he had them sign a petition saying Harryhausen deserves an Oscar. And that year, at that year's Oscar telecast, Tom Hanks presented Ray Harryhausen with his Oscar. So any of you who have a dream or want to do something that speaks to the people in film and TV that you love, or books, well, you know, if, if something's a crime that someone hasn't been honored, then take it in hand. Do it. You can do it. It's, it's, uh, so Arnold Cunard actually met Harryhausen and became essentially his, his manager for the later years of his life, his, his uh, spokesperson. And so all these Harryhausen projects were getting mounted, uh, uh, books and comic books and so forth. And, uh, <clears throat> and there was a book that came out called Ray Harryhausen, An Animated Life. This was in the early 2000s. And, uh, and I saw the book. I loved it. I bought it, of course, and got it autographed. And, um, 
And it had a, an appendix, which is all the unmade projects. And I thought these were wonderful. And, uh, and so I reached out and, uh, to, and, and to Harryhausen and, and Arnold Cunard, and I said, I think we should do some of these. I think we should, we should do Ray Harryhausen Presents and make some of these. And uh, so a friend of mine was Chris Wyatt, and he had just produced uh, Napoleon Dynamite. He was a member of the roundtable that I run and, and a young man with a lot of, a lot of uh, ability. <clears throat> and so, um, so I, um, Chris Wyatt and I flew to London. And we met with Harryhausen at his house, which was quite wonderful. It was in a very posh section of London, and Harryhausen was a very gracious host. And uh, we went into this house, and it was owned previously by Michael Powell, a, a very famous director who had done The Red Shoes and many other great films, Black Narcissus. And, uh, and Harryhausen had bought it from him, and it was filled with wonderful pieces of artwork. In many of Harryhausen's drawings, his pre-production sketches, which you, if you haven't seen them, I urge you to, to look them up. They're, they're gorgeous. They have this quality of, of uh, foliage, and they, they have sort of this foggy look going into the background. And I have one of the prints, uh, one of Harryhausen's lithographs on my wall, signed by him to me. And, uh, and, he, and he was very influenced in his drawing style by Gustave Doré, who did wonderful illustrations in Dante's Inferno and the Bible and many, many other great books in the 19th century. And Harryhausen actually had an original painting by Gustave Doré in his, in his house. And, uh, and Harryhausen said, would you like to see my, my trophy room? And he took us into his trophy room that had all of the animatronic figures, all the stop-motion figures he had done of, uh, from Jason and the Argonauts and, and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and 20 Million Miles to Earth and all these amazing, amazing films that he had done. And they were, you know, they're, they're yay high, they're tiny. And the Hydra in that great fight uh, in Jason and the Argonauts, the seven-headed Hydra. And again, now just to keep, you, keep in mind how it worked, Harryhausen would stand there on a table with a tabletop model and he would shoot frame by frame, clicking off the frames, 24 frames per second, and he would have to keep all those movements in his head because if he got anything wrong, if there was any glitch, he'd have to go back and start all over again. And so it's an amazing, amazing uh, testament to his brilliance that he could do these <clears throat> phenomenal sequences that he would see in his mind. And, uh, and again, he was sculpting these these, these wonderful figures himself and, and making them out of, you know, he'd first sculpt them in clay and then build the armature and then cast the armature out of, you know, latex, foam, rubber, all of that, and, and then paint them himself. Amazing, amazing work. Uh, it was very much a one-man operation. These are films crafted by hand. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, so, so he, he had learned his craft from, from Willis O'Brien and, uh, and then gone on to make these spectacular movies. And, uh, so we pitched this idea of doing Ray Harryhausen Presents to Harryhausen, and he said, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's do it. And so I started working up the ideas, and, uh, and one of the ideas I came up with was a sequel to Jason and the Argonauts called Jason in the Underworld. And the basic notion of that was that uh, Jason is now world famous because, uh, in, the, in the ancient world because uh, Orpheus, the, the great singer and poet, has been singing his his exploits to the to the ancient world. So wherever Jason goes, he he doesn't have to ever pick up a tab. Everyone, he's a hero. He's he's renowned. So then Orpheus's wife dies, and Eurydice, <clears throat> and she she's in the underworld. Well, Orpheus knows that he can't go into the underworld and save his wife. So he goes to Jason and he says, "Listen, you owe me. Uh, you've been living high on the hog, and I need you to basically assemble the magnificent seven of the the ancient world, and go into the underworld with me and get my wife back." and bring her back up to the, to, the, to the land of the living. And so that's what Jason does. And he gathers all these ancient heroes, these great heroes from antiquity, and they go into the underworld, and they have, and they have these, these amazing fights, these amazing sequences uh, in, this, in this vast realm where they're fighting you know, the uh, Cerberus, the three-headed dog, the giant three-headed dog, who's the servant of the, of the Lord of the Underworld. And also Jason, of course, meets the daughter of the Lord of the Underworld, and they fall in love. And at the end, 
uh, they get they save Eurydice and they get oh, but one of the key things is that if any of our characters is killed, they ultimately become a servant of the Lord of the Underworld, and so they're on the other side now, and so it becomes an increasingly challenging uh, battle. And in the end, they they do save Eurydice. They get up to the to the to the to the land of the living, the surface world, with with Eurydice and Orpheus and Jason and the daughter of the Lord of the Underworld, whom they've. Uh, saved also and brought her here, and but they decide to make the the official story now be that they failed in their in their uh, uh, attempt to save uh, Eurydice, and so that the official story will be uh, that they that didn't work, so they can now live live a quieter life and uh, and have a, have a private life in addition to the public one. So that was the basic notion. So we went to Comic Con. With and Harryhausen was there as a guest, and we met the uh, the heads of the Sci-Fi Channel, and they were very enthusiastic, and they wanted to do a multi-picture deal, and and like so many things in Hollywood, ultimately the financing could not come together, and the production company they married us with, uh, it didn't work out, and I was very sad, I was very heartbroken about that, that it didn't get done, it didn't get made, because we were going to do a number of wonderful projects, uh, but but the challenge, of course, was to do them right. I I, I actually had a meeting with the. Uh, John Copeland, who I'd worked with as a producer, he had been a producer on Babylon 5 when I wrote for that, and we talked about how we would mount these and how, how they could be done and what they would cost. And again, I didn't want them to be like the sci-fi movies of the week where the, the effects were, were cheesy and they were just kind of product that was generated as, that was you know as good as it would be and then on to the next one. I wanted these to be done as lovingly as Harryhausen's original films. And so it was, a, it was a great sadness to me that these never got made. And eventually I'll post that outline for Jason and the Underworld on my website, and you can all read it. And, uh, but just getting to know Harryhausen, getting to, to be part of his world and see how he, how he worked and how he, he acted. He was just a gentleman and, uh, and just phenomenal. And, um, and I, also, you know, it was... Uh, you know, at that time, that then I moved on to the, of course, doing the book with Guillermo del Toro, and Guillermo, of course, loved Harryhausen too, and so in 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 the back of, uh, in the backyard of of Guillermo's house, Bleak House, which is filled with all of his wonderful items, there's a life-size bronze of Ray Harryhausen, and uh, so so you know so basically, but the lovely lovely thing about people like Harryhausen is he inspired all of us. And now, of course, there are dozens of people making amazing science fiction television shows and science fiction movies. But when, when Harryhausen was doing his work, there was, this is before Star Trek, before Star Wars, there wasn't, you know, he was, he was out there on his own doing these films. And he, told me, he told me some great stories. For instance, if you ever see Seventh Voyage of Sinbad again, they didn't have a lot of money. They shot it in Spain and, uh, and uh, you know, they couldn't afford to build a ship or rent a ship. So they use stock footage. So Harry Harryhausen told me that every time you go back to Sinbad's ship, it's a different ship. It's stock footage. It's a different ship. And so you, you and no one would ever notice it. And I'm sure that if you've seen that film, you've never noticed it. But now go back and watch that film and you'll see. And it's just hilarious that it is, it is different every single time. But, uh, but you know, it's... Uh, it's so wonderful that Harryhausen got to make these films, that he and Charles Schneer teamed up. And he and Ray, Ray Bradbury were hoping to do more work together, but, but it never came to that. They actually had very different pursuits and very different enthusiasms, but, but they had the same heart, I think. And, uh, you know, it's a lot harder to do films of the fantastic than to just write books. And so what, what, what Harryhausen was mounting was even more spectacular and more amazing, I think, in certain ways than Ray Bradbury. Ray, Ray was one of a kind as well, and his work is phenomenal, too, and I love it dearly, and he was an amazing friend and a great mentor. But, uh, but I'm so glad that I got to know both of these men and, uh, and that they got to know each other, because when you think of them as, as two 16-year-olds becoming friends and, and spinning out their dreams of the future and their dreams of the past and, and loving dinosaurs and getting to to bring dinosaurs to the world in such a concrete way. And, uh, 
and we, we now have, see the world of mythology and the world of the dinosaurs and, and even in Mysterious Island where you see that world of Jules Verne so well realized with Harryhausen's creations, the giant crab, the, the giant chick, the, the bird, you know, this bird that they fight with, the, the giant bumblebee. Um, you know, it's, I think because it was one man making these, these, these creations in a way that, uh, that they have an individual um, stamp that even something like Star Wars doesn't have. And Star Wars is, is brilliant in its way, and it has had a huge reach. But I think without Harryhausen, you wouldn't have had Star Wars. Without these amazing, amazing creators who were who were, who were all alone. I mean, you know, Ray Harryhausen couldn't couldn't hang out with dozens of his compatriots in film. They didn't exist. He might run into George Powell every now and then, but that was about it. So, um, so I just wanted to, to to tell you all about my my experience with this singular man. And if you haven't watched Harryhausen's films, please go out and see them. They're, they're charming, they're delightful, they're heartwarming, they're unique. There's nothing like them. And uh, so that's really it for now. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to thank Winter's Bone for, for encouraging me to make this commentary. Uh, you can tell I love talking about this subject and, and these men. And, um, and also, you know, even, even unmade projects. I mean, all the unmade projects of Harryhausen, even all of my unmade projects... You know, the, the, some of the good ones get made, some of the good ones don't get made, but you, you keep on the path and you keep true to your heart, and that's the name of the game. Eventually, I'll, I'll, I'm, sh- I'm planning on publishing a book of... Uh, I'm going to publish Mark Zickery's big book of scripts, which are scripts that did get made, and, and, and Mark Zickery's big book of scripts, which will be outlines and scripts for projects and series Bibles that didn't get made, and may yet, because now that I have my studio, it's just a matter of reaching out to my fan base and, uh, and getting stuff made. So... So if you want to request a commentary you'd like me to do, a piece you'd like me to do, uh, just you know, like, share, spread the word. You can reach out to me on my Mr. Sci-Fi channel. Uh, watch the other videos if you haven't seen them. We'll be doing one soon about George Powell, one about time travel, just everything and anything that, that interests me. And, uh, but, uh, but you know, Ray Harryhausen's now gone, sadly, but everyone dies. But his work is with us. And thank God there's DVD and downloadable content and all these great ways. Because when I was a kid, the only way you could see these films was either they'd be revived at a movie theater once in a blue moon, or you'd see them on TV cut up with commercials, and you have to wait. There was no way to, to watch a film that you loved when you, when you wanted to see it. Now we have that great gift thanks to our technologies in this 21st century that we, that we live in and we share. So until next time, it's Mark Zickrey, Mr. Sci-Fi, Mark Zickrey of Space Command. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you soon, and, uh, and thanks for, for sharing this wonderful, wonderful world of science fiction and fantasy with me. Bye-bye. There you go, Mark. What can I say? A massive thank you, sir. Thank you so much. More, more, more. Yes, more, please. That would be fantastic. Next up is, like you see, we're playing three stories by Cat Rambo. I'll give you a little heads up about Cat Rambo. Cat lives, writes, and teaches by the shores of an eagle-haunted lake in the Pacific Northwest. Her 150-plus fiction publications include stories in Asimov's Clark's World and Tor.com. Her short story, Five Ways to Fall in Love on on Planet Porcelain, from her story collection, Nia Plus Far, was a 2012 Nebula nominee. Her editorship of Fantasy Magazine earned her a World Fantasy Award nomination in 2012. She's the current Vice President of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. For more about her, as well as links to her fiction, see kittywumpus.net. I'll put a link on, just in case I've got that wrong, on the show as well. This story, now the first one is Bots de Mar. 
And this story is narrated by that fine young gentleman way up there in the Bonnie Hills of Scotland, Mr. Kenny Park. Actually, I'm working hopefully soon with Kenny as well on the Kickstarter SofaCon. Kenny's going to be in charge of recording the show, so I don't got that, that to worry about as well. And I've, I've hit Kenny a few times of late as well for, for new things. I'll give you a little heads up if you don't know who Kenny is. Kenny is a video editor by trade, but having trained and worked as an actor, director and writer, he maintains it's all just storytelling. He's been involved with Starship Sofa since the early days of, of me and Kieran. <laughs> That's a great writing, me, me and Kieran. It was Kenny that kind of came over when we went to do the, the legendary Michael Moorcock film in Paris. You know, Kenny was the man who kind of recorded all that film and sound and everything like that as well. You know, he organised all that. So fantastic. Kenny, you are a star, a big star. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Bots de Moor by Cat Ramble. The bots were going to run Linus out of room soon. If they didn't scavenge away some piece vital to the ship's functioning and leave him choking on vacuum first. He didn't think anyone else had these problems with their ship bots. Galena would say it was his own fault for encouraging them. The toys were definitely where he had gone awry. Three runs ago, Linus had acquired a cargo hold full of antique toys, some travelling exhibit going out to the colonies that someone had pilfered along the way. He'd taken them as payment for a poker debt, not realising how difficult they would be to dispose of. He'd finally given up trying to sell or swap them and had stacked the boxes in the furnace hold the bots used for their workshop, reclaiming several spanners and a laser torch in trade. Most of the stuff they'd rendered down to its constituent parts, but odd bits had showed up in the latest generation. Beetle bots spiked with yellow plastic dinosaurs, a spindle-legged spider that had used screws and interlocked plastic bits to construct multicoloured limbs, Mannequin bots with doll faces and tiny hands. He went down the corridor, passing two child-sized bots. One clicked out a memory card and handed it to the other. He slotted it into his chest between two gleaming silver stripes. That's such a bad idea, he said reflexively in passing. They paid him no attention. He'd asked the ship to speak to them, to emphasise the problems of viruses and corrupted memory, he thought, and sighed, using his fingers to comb his wispy hair away from his face. He would have liked more gravity, but, well, fuel rods didn't make themselves, so he kept the gravity down in brittle bone territory, telling himself it was just for a little longer. He had more things to worry about than bots, though, if he ever wanted to weigh more than a few kilos ever again. A beetlebot scurried across the corridor and up the wall, vanishing into an air duct's opening with a swish of its pink nylon tail. That had looked like a new model. Fuel rods couldn't regenerate themselves, but the bots could. He'd successfully persuaded them to stick to upgrades for a long time, but it seemed as though the urge to propagate was too strong. Early on, he'd disabled their replica chips, but they'd reinstated them and started scavenging for supplies to create their offspring, solo projects and elaborate joint efforts. The Rainbow Spider was one such construction, the product of dozens of the several hundred bots on the ship. A mannequin bot clattered out of the kitchen and stamped towards him. A quarter of his height, it covered much less ground than he did, 
but its pace was quick and determined. He refused to step out of its way, and its head swiveled, showing him a red-eyed screen and a robot obscenity scrolling across it. Two plus two equals five. Screw you two, he muttered, and made his way into the galley to tab for some hot water to make tea. Your blood pressure is too high, the ship said. Let's do a guided meditation. Let's let me get my drink and sit down, he snarled over his shoulder. He wondered if Galena were still in range. Talking to her always calmed him. They tried to time their trips to the station, but Galena wanted profit, was always looking for the score that would let her move to work in a more settled system. He thought, I've been out here too long. I'm talking to the ship, to the bots, as though they were old friends at the corner coffee shop. A dull throb behind his eyes pulsed in time with the irregularities of the ventilator fan, going high and low in a reverberating whine that seemed to drill into his skull's centre. The last time he'd been in port, he'd seen Galena, but only in passing. Not even a kiss traded before she was off and out again on a priority run, and he was just starting to tick off the first items on his restock list. Juice and seeds, something new to liven the groarium. Breathing hard, he went into the groarium and stood there in the green-lit space amid the shelves of wheatgrass and algae. He crushed a tomato leaf between his fingers and sniffed, the smell taking him back to summers at his grandparents in the hammock beside the tubs of earth on their balcony, looking out over serried canyons of apartment buildings where pigeons wheeled. Grandpop had fed the feral cats in the alley behind the building, taking down scraps in Ziploc plastic bags, bellied with kibble. The fat queens were similarly bellied, but with kittens. They were always wire-limbed, weary kittens that Linus would try unsuccessfully to coax near. Dawn and dusk. That was when Grandpop had fed them. Sometimes he and Linus had sat out in the apartment building's concrete back landing, watching the cats hunt rats and water beetles. In the evenings, bats swooped around the electric lights twenty feet overhead, through flittering insect swarms like glitter in the air. He could feel his thoughts slowing as he contemplated those distant, dark evenings, the smell of his grandfather's herbal cigarette. Something clanked outside, rejittering his nerves. He paused, listening. Somehow the silence was more ominous than sound would have been. Linus would run into the station and see about a courier run. He'd just about break even on costs and he could keep an eye out for trading opportunities along the way. He hadn't meant to. He thought he'd stay here for another few weeks, looking for good salvage, asteroids full of ice and ore. But when he was talking to himself, he knew it was time to come from the fringes of human existence. Even on twice-far station, though, he felt removed from the lives around him as though he were watching them from far out in space, peering through camera lens or computer conduit. He paused in front of Akla's wares, went so far as to go through the wide door to see if his friend Kalakak was there. He wasn't, nor was it the surly robot who sometimes spelled him. Instead, two smaller Balabel sat beside the front counter, weaving baskets of red and yellow reeds, ugly but authentic-looking. Like Kalakak... They were reptilian in appearance, four-armed. Galakak was a little taller than Linus, but these were substantially smaller. He wondered if they were Kalakak's children. Someone shouldered past him and he saw it was a third, even smaller Balabel. 
He half smiled at it. It reminded him of the toys somehow, but it turned and made a rude gesture at him. Do you intend to buy anything? it demanded. He blinked. No, he said. Tell Calicac Linus stopped by. His friend Linus, or his customer Linus, or his tax collector Linus. Friend, he said. It straightened up a little from its slouch while the other two whispered behind it. We will convey the message, it said. He rode the escalator up the midnight stair and wandered through the massive food court for half an hour before settling on spicy noodles and a fruit-coloured drink. He wondered what the bots were doing back on the ship. It was one of the biggest taboos infesting a port, but he'd told them of the possible cost. They'd had strict orders not to go outside the ship. Surely that would be enough. They were nothing if not rational. He chewed his noodles, which were undercooked and mealy. Someone touched his shoulder and he jumped, startled as a child finding a midnight ghost. Jasper Taitland, dressed in corpsewear plastics, textured to look like grey wool. Linus, the older man said and slid into a chair without asking. Linus, do you still have those toys you got from me playing cards? Hope surged in Linus's breast. Perhaps Jasper would buy his goods back at a profit to Linus. Or break-even costs, at least. He reconsidered. How easy would it be to reclaim those toys from the bots? Probably not easy at all. Can't really lay my hands on them anymore, he said, with regret. Jasper reached out, took a fingerful of noodles, slurped them down. Been people asking about them, and they've been kind of persistent. Seems they were valuable. Had some fairly early AI chips prototypes for intelligent toys. So where did the toys end up? Linus shrugged and pulled his bowl closer. He chased the last bite of noodle down with his fork. Sold him, gave him away. Jasper watched him closely. Linus didn't care much who was chasing Jasper. The man annoyed him. So he shrugged again, just to see the muscle under the core slave's left eye twitch. Lost him? Jasper leaned forward. Lost him? Where? If I knew that, would they be lost? Linus crumpled his bowl into a damp ball and threw it into the nearest recycler, chased it with a utensil. This isn't a good time to be farking around, Linus, Jasper said. Linus stood up. Wouldn't do that to you, Jasper. Tell your friends the stuff's gone. I need to head to the P.O. But before he got as far as the exit to the food court, he bumped into Galena. She beamed at him. She wore a bright turquoise scarf, printed with purple triangles and yellow stars, tied to confine her ginger-red hair. Her eyebrows were fine and downy as finch feathers. Maybe this time they'd snatch some hours together for pleasure and sleep and pleasure again. She pulled him into a swillery and ordered washes of beer and a basket of dry, multigrain pretzels. Long time, no face to face, she said. Been a while, he agreed. He ate a pretzel, cracking it in his back teeth. He probably should visit a dentist while here, but it was just another bill. He sighed and she laughed. Are you listening to me? No, he said, guilt doubled. 
wondering if he'd screwed his chances at sex with her this trip. No, sorry, Galena. There's been a lot in my mind. Expenses, you know. That's what I'm trying to say. About those toys you had. Out here, stuff like that isn't worth much, but you get into the well-populated galaxies where there's lots of wealth. Well, there you find collectors. People who want to pay a lot for something that is unique, like antique toys. I've got a friend travelling hubward. Someone you could trust to represent you, sell the toys for you. He frowned, trying to fit his head around this. He'd never seen the point of collections. Jasper said they had AI chips in them. No, I don't know anything about that, she said. I know you can get money for them. Good money. Enough to upgrade your ship, start making longer runs. His phone squealed. Calacac. Even as he started to answer, Galena said, Think about it. Ask me when you're freed up. She made a gotta-get-going signal, swung herself out of the booth. He waved to her as she left. Moments later, Kalakak slid into her still-warm seat, signalled for a bulb of juice. You look beat, Linus said. Even though he didn't know much about balabells, a weary slouch to the shopkeeper's shoulder testified to a lack of sleep and a plentitude of stress. Akla's cousins, Kalakak said, and punctured the juice bulb with a vicious slice of an eye tooth. Been staying with me. The ones at the shop? Yes, worthless little shits most of the time. Why are you letting them stay then? Pack of jellydews tried to claim the space. The little guys helped convince them it was haunted. Linus snorted. Or you could be a soft touch. Yeah, says the man running a bot orphanage in a breeding factory. Fair enough. He punched an order for whiskey into the table surface. The draft's heat washed through him. Kalakak's eyes were intent. The frill atop his head rose and fell as though in amusement. If any of those bots get loose in the station and they're traced back to you, you'll be facing a big fine, you know. They know better, he said, but he kept his voice low. Look, everyone wants these toys all of a sudden. You know much about them? Kalakak shrugged. I don't deal in antiques, collectibles. I buy cheap curiosities and fall-apart souvenirs of the station. He fished in his apron pocket. Like these. Half of the shards gleamed with colour, the others were frosted white glass. Kalakak nudged a frosted one over to him with the pointed top of a talon. Take it. Hold it in your palm till it warms. He closed his fingers over it, felt it not quite thrill, not quite squirm against his skin. When it warmed, he uncurled his fingers. The white had taken on yellow and orange tracery, like a new autumn leaf. That's prettier than I expected. The deeper, the purer the emotion, the more colourful the shards become. It's hard to get a reliable source of good ones, Kalakak said. He tapped two of the coloured ones. These are from the cousins. You'd think young things would be full of emotion. That's what makes the best colour. Instead, look at this. The shards in question were coloured chestnut and taupe with scatterings of teal freckles. Dull, Kalakak said, and I despair of teaching any of them decent taste, although Tedelsa sometimes shows glimmerings. He pushed the coloured shard back towards Kalakak but the adult Balabel pushed it back to him, along with two more frosted shards. 
take them. The school here uses them for exercises. I've been buying bits to sell for souvenirs. Linus slid them into an inner pocket and palmed the table, paying for them both. Outside in the hallway, the three cousins slouched against the wall. He wondered how off he was in considering them sullen teenagers. Were they Calacac's version of stray cats? Is that robot tending shop? Yeah, Calacac said. He's cheap. He glared at the cousins. And these three get into trouble if you leave them there too long. Sla wanted to say something back, Linus could tell, but it refrained, although not without a defiant bristle. We are walking Linus, my friend, back to his ship to look at some goods, Kalakak told them. Is it far? Sla asked. We have walked a great deal today. And you will walk farther yet before the day is done, Kalakak retorted. I need to stop by the P.O., Linus said humbly. He and Kalakak ignored Sla's huff of irritation. I did a squeal. Someone was trying to get into the ship. Come on, he said. Kalakak and his three cousins followed him. By the time they made their way down two levels and through a set of decontamination corridors, the intruders were gone. They'd cut a hole in the side, and for a little while he obsessively checked the systems, looking for an infrared shadow that might betray an invader's presence. The bots clustered around him, as though for reassurance. He didn't notice any missing, but they'd changed so much on a daily basis, swapping bits and pieces, manufacturing others. Mirrors were currently popular, that he had no idea. One of the cousins, the smallest one, made a sound at the sight of the bots, a squeak of pure entrancement, stepping forward. The other two pushed after it. Those aren't yours, Kalakak said. Fingers off! They steal like little apes, he told Linus. No offence intended. The eldest gave him a disappointed look, but Sla turned to Linus. Can we play with them, it said. Sla, Kalakak said, but Linus shook his head. If they let you, he told the little Balabels. Look, that one's sparkly, Tesla said. They all reached for the bottom question. Linus expected it to dart away but instead it stretched like a snake and curled up the Balabelle's arm as the three cousins cooed to it. Twice far attracts opportunists, Kalakak said. People are chasing your toys, but they don't want to outright steal them. When the government switches over, as it always does eventually, they tend to make their moves. His phone buzzed as Galena called. Are you okay? she demanded without preamble. He felt vaguely embarrassed, caught himself hunching a shoulder, ducking away from the witnessing stares of the bots. I'm with Kalakak and his kids. Kalakak made a half-strangled sound behind him. What's up? Look, she said, do you have those toys? Well, there's not much left of them, he hedged. She paused. What have you been doing, she asked finally, playing with them? No, he said. The bots have been self-augmenting with them. She sighed. Those ridiculous bots. I've told you before, they get loose in the station Europe for a big fine. Might even get banned for it. Look, you can kill two birds with one stone by disassembling some of them. He looked around. Disassemble them. A blue and red soldier strutted by, its bottom half a centaur cannon. Kalakak folded both sets of arms, regarding it with disapproval. "'Has Jasper talked to you?' she demanded. 
Yeah, but I had to duck out, he said. You didn't tell me that. I thought you'd only been in the port a quarter of an hour or so. What did he want? Same thing as you, the toys, he said. Presumably for the same reason, profit. He felt a bit crass saying the last, but he might as well call them as he saw them. He didn't want any of the little bots taking apart to serve Galena or Jasper's aims. He'd sign on to a courier mission as fast as possible, restock, refuel, repair, go boomeranging back to the outer reaches of the system where he and the bots would be safe. She started to say something, but he hung up. Are you all here? he asked the clustered bots. They stared at him. He couldn't tell what they were thinking, whether or not they understood. Bots left to themselves developed screwed-up algorithms, weird logic twists caused by introverted generations. A burly-shouldered bot flashed 3 plus 3 equals 7 at him, and he half-smiled. Yeah, I see you. He welded some odd steel over the hole from inside and set bots to watching it with cutting lasers. Other bots were showing the cousins the inner reaches of their construction. Linus said to Kalakak, You watch over the ship. When I get back, we'll talk. Okay, Kalakak said. I can tell you, though, you're not going to get much, if anything, for what's left of those toys. They're all spliced and melted and repurposed. Back within an hour, he said, to the squat spider bots, arms clustered around the laser grips and clattered down the ladder. The air still smelled of hot steel. Where are you headed? Kalakak asked. To see Jasper. One of the things Linus hated about the station was the noise. It was always there, a medley of machinery and conversation and a distant grinding, as of monstrous teeth. Ship noises you tuned out after a while, but station noise was changeable, unpredictable. Jasper lived in one of the pricier sections of Twice Far, apartments overlooking the space that had yawned beside the midnight stairs. He didn't answer his door. Behind another apartment door, a baby cried. Linus looked up and down the empty corridor, palmed a screwdriver and set to work on the lock, easing it up with nimble twitches of the metal blade. Inside, Jasper was sitting on the couch. His neck was oddly angled, broken like a straw. Linus held perfectly still for a moment, listening. But the air was stale and undisturbed, and he relaxed his shoulders, stepping forward to stare at the corpse. He held his breath as he went through Jasper's pockets. Nothing. He called Kalakak, but hesitated, not sure what to say. I need to get back to the shop, Kalakak said. The cousins are there, said there's nothing wrong in a tone that makes me nervous. Can I lock up here for you? Yeah, Linus said. He searched, opening drawers to glance inside, trying to figure out... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What Jasper would have had that was worth killing him for. A jar in the kitchen had been smashed and something picked out of the flour. What, Linus wasn't sure. The cameras throughout the apartment, as well as along the corridor, had been disabled. Something invisible plucked at his sleeve. His heart stopped for a minute before he realised it was a bot, unobtrusive, hovering in the air beside his elbow. Then he realised it was one of his bots, off the ship, doing God knows what. And this time his heart stopped again and a chill edged through his blood as he contemplated the size of the fine for infesting a station with self-aware, fully replicating bots. It tugged again as a distant alarm sounded and his stomach tensed. He decided to get out while the going was good. Back at the ship, he went first to the galley, heated beef broth and bitter coffee. A sense of presence gathered at his back and he spun to see half a dozen bots contemplating him, peering at him from the doorway of his room. What? he snapped. A turtle-shaped robot rolled forward, extended a tentacle to tug at his fingers. He followed. In the shadowy depths of the furnace room they had claimed as their own, excrescences and extrusions of metal and plastic and sparkling bits, a figure almost as tall as he was. He stopped in front of it. Two figures worked on it, blonde-haired dolls a third of a metre high, each with multiple arms, six and eight. The skin was made of brown plastic, but he recognised bits from the recycling bin, recast into the smooth surface, a glimmer of green vinegar bottle, the letters 1206 stretched thin and spidery as an old tattoo. He stared. They had made something as human as they could, shaped and sized somewhat like him. They had understood breasts and tried to create them in that sleek form. They had made her face like his, but more delicate, unbeaded. The hair was strands of tinsel, combed carefully, falling like water. The eyes were very beautiful, coloured like summer butterflies. He looked at the watching bots and understood. They had built him a bride. They had sensed his loneliness. Did they think themselves Cupid? Bots de mole? He stood and contemplated her as the two spider-limbed dolls fussed and fiddled like hairdressers, bridesmaids, a goddess's attendants. She looked at him with her mirrored eyes flickering like wings opening and closing as he caught her secret amusement. He wanted to give her a present. 
He fished in his pocket, held out shards of emotion glass, his sunset-coloured curve, the two unimpressed pieces as pale as moonlight. As she touched them, they flared purple and green and peacock, deep underwater colours as beautiful as anything he'd ever seen. The colours caught the breath from his lungs. They were reflected in her eyes. Emotions from a robot, deep and beautiful and complex, more complex than any human could manage. From behind him, an amused voice. Well, this is cosy, I must say. Galena, he spun. Where are the toys, she said. As he stepped away from the cluster of robots, her eyes widened. You have got to be kidding me. Do you know how much those old pieces were worth? A fortune! A thumping on the outside entrance. They made it to the lock, twice far port authority. Holding a robot that he recognised, its arms pink and green as candy stripes. But when the door irised open, the bot streaked to Galena, held her about the shoulder. Ownership established. One of the officials said with grim satisfaction, even as she protested, They're not mine. They just look like something I'd own. The ownership chip has been wiped, the other official said, but it seems to identify with you, ma'am, as though it had recently come into contact with you. She struggled, but they held her by the arms. Her scarf drifted away, fell to the floor in a flutter of colour. She'd been the intruder, Linus realised. But how had the bots gotten off the ship? How had they known she was a danger? Why had one been willing to sacrifice itself for the rest? And for him, perhaps? He looked at the robot they bots had made for him. Shyly, he extended a hand that trembled just a little as she reached for him in turn. Kalakak studied the two shards of glass that Linus had placed before him. They were coloured like midnight rainbows, Arcs of colour that tantalised and drew the eye into their depths. Have her imprint a few more dozen of these before you go, he said, if you think she won't mind. You say they built her for you? God only knows what they think of human sexuality, Linus said. Still, a little grin tugged at the corner of his lip. Where are the cousins? Still working off their punishment for taking your bots and trying to reprogram them, Kalakak said. I know it all turned out all right, but do you know what that fine would have been multiplied by three? They both shuddered and lifted their drinks, as though to toast the absence of the hypothetical fine. One of them might be of great use to you on a run, Kalakak said. No. Back at the ship, he ran through the pre-flight checks. A quick mission, and well-paying through a friend of Kalakak's. You must never leave the ship again, even if other sentients say it's all right, he told the bots, watching him run the drill. She was in the doorway. Her sparkling hair was bound back with Galena's silk scarf. Linus eyed her shyly. Particularly you, he told her. This was crazy, this was, he thought. Perhaps the first step towards madness. He wondered if they'd built him robot children, great-grandchildren with his dandelion fluff hair, lenses the colour of his cloudy eyes. He wondered what the stray cats had thought, winding around Grandpop's ankles. 
had they built empires in their heads there in the gathering darkness while faraway dogs barked in backyards beneath the early stars? What can I say? Cat, thank you so much. Don't forget, copyright for that story is Cat Rambo's. And like I say, we're going to be playing two more very soon as well. And a big heads up to Kenny. Kenny, what can I say? Thank you so much. You are a star, sir. Thank you very much indeed. So like I say, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology, who can help your business by supplying a managed off-site backup of your essential data to services located in the UK. There you go. So right throughout this year, we were sponsored by Octagon Technology. I'll put a link on there if you just want to go over and say hello to Octagon Technology. That would be fantastic. Been in business since 1995 and still going strong. Celebrating 20 years in the industry. Fantastic achievement. So next up is another story by Cat Rambo. This one is entitled Mother's World. And it's narrated by... Lulu Sal, who, can anyone remember? Lulu is our very own mom of Jeremy Sal, who is the assistant editor over here at Starship Sova. Give me a little heads up as well. Lulu is a teacher, a school teacher specialising in English and history, living in Sydney, Australia. She is an author of children's and young adult books and occasionally a writer of fantasy short stories. Her work has been published in Aurora, 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 Wolf Magazine, and she is currently fast at work writing more short stories for publication. There you go. I'll put a link on to Lulu as well, so you can pop over there and say hello. That's fantastic. It's a family affair here. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Mother's World by Cat Rambo. Narrated by Lulu Zal. I typed in, So, Mother, how are you doing? And quick as thought, the answer appeared on my screen. Good, sweetie. I led a raid on Castle Norrith last night. I think we've put the goblin menace down once and for all. A sigh made its painful way between my lips. Here at the public terminals, there were no cameras, so I could shake my head without triggering her temper routines. I spent all my teenage and young adult years running away from my mother, and now that I was older, I'd run back to find her gone, passed on, but still here as the ghost in the machine, accessible at any library or coffee shop terminal. I rarely tell anyone that my mother is a netizen, one of the electronic elite. By now, there are not the tens of thousands of netizens initially projected, but merely hundreds. Despite the marketing campaigns and all the news articles describing the delights of virtual worlds, very few people wanted to achieve immortality at the price demanded. Beyond the cost of digitising memory, the idea of spending their last years with audio and video implants, recording every moment so it would be available to their personality program once they'd died, did not appeal to many. Sometimes I wonder if I drove her to it. Maybe she said it to show I wasn't the only one capable of making life-altering decisions. She didn't approve when I joined the church. It's a cult, she said. A man trying to play God and enjoying watching others obey his whims. Your daily life is predicated entirely on someone's likes and dislikes. You only joined so you wouldn't have to make decisions. It was a familiar accusation. Here is a scene from my childhood. Me, hesitating in my room, 
three school outfits laid out on the bed, unable to decide. Outside, it's raining. Her footsteps come up the hardwood stairs like rapid gunfire, high heels clicking as she sweeps into the room, hissing between her teeth in exasperation as she sees me there. It's been almost 45 minutes. You'll be late for school. Quick and decisive, she snatches clothing from the bed like a hawk swooping for prey and assembles a fourth outfit. This blouse with this skirt and those shoes, idiot child. I don't like those shoes, I attempt. They're the latest style. Little girls are killing each other over these. This is, unfortunately, no exaggeration. When my mother heard about the Chicago shoe riot, she'd gone to considerable expense to get me a pair. And no earrings? Find a pair. A real lady accessorises. I mumble something about not wanting to go through the special metal detector at school, the one that makes allowances for things like earrings and grommets and retro fashions like zippers. But she's gone already. The rain taps on the window like a patient call for attention as I slip gold hoops through my ears, resigned to my fate. She dressed me in the latest styles, got me sleek and pretty haircuts of the sort featured in Seventeen or Cybergirl. I was the first in my class with any fad, whether it was light-up fingernails or filed teeth, and she picked my classes the same way for me, training me in the directions she would have liked to take. You'll thank me for it later, she said. I was a drab little mouse in school and no one talked to me. Nothing like that for my daughter. She got me a nose job for my 15th birthday. At 16, at the urging of a teacher, I filed for, and received, emancipation. She didn't understand why I wanted it, but in some corner of her soul, she was thrilled by the thought of me off-adventuring, independent, so she didn't put up much of a fight. It was what she'd always wanted to do. A year later, I went to college where my friends picked up my classes for me, told me to take calculus so Penny could benefit from my homework, solarian lit so Beck wouldn't have to do the reading, cuisines and hygienes so I could provide home-cooked meals. Despite any illusions my mother might have developed, they knew I still couldn't make decisions. I did choose to join the church. I'm sure of that. A friend of a friend brought me to one of their dinners, camaraderie and kindness, everyone touching me with a friendly hug or a pat on the back. Later on, I'd learned how to do it myself, lean into someone long enough to convince them of my warmth, my kindness, my intense interest in them as a person. All right, perhaps a little over-persuasive, but when Brother Soul asked me if I wanted to stay... He said over and over, it must be my choice. And was I sure, over and over again, even though I'd already said yes? Every time he asked, my resolve hardened until I could feel it like a metal rod along my spine. When my mother tried to opt me out against my will, the rod got harder, stiffer, spread out along my limbs until I thought I must be walking like a robot. But they had the AVI of me saying yes, enunciated loud and clear before three witnesses and my mother was forced to relent. The judge in court gave her kindly advice to let go and detach with love and patted her on the shoulder. By then, she'd picked her disease and found out how to get it. Much later, she showed me a memory clip. She lifted the vial to her nostril, inhaling deeply. She didn't feel a thing. 
I didn't know. Two days later she signed up to become a netizen. The church encouraged us to remember our families and to visit them in order to carry witness of Sol's word out into the world. When I first came, I saw the cameras surrounding her like bees. Another one sat on her forehead, silver tendrils tapping into her chemical and electrical levels, monitoring and recording them. Is this a documentary of an ungrateful daughter, I asked, bewildered. I'm becoming a netizen. She looked tired but well, and I chalked it up to the stress of mechanical eyes watching her. A program? More than a program, she pronounced. She spread glossy pamphlets out on the coffee table and told me about the process. Every week they extracted her memories and backed them up. But the cameras recorded additional information that would be useful to her later on, when she existed only online. How can you afford this? I met NetCorp's conditions. I am a beta tester. No charge. My only regret is that I should have started earlier, she said. The more memory material that I have in the banks, the better. You have years to store it up, I said, starting at 45 like this? She told me then, I have rot. No one gets that without going to that planet. What's it called? Morgliana. That's it. Only there. That's the only way you can get it. I self-infected. When I went down to the hospital to have my shoulder checked on, I found the ward where they keep it. There was a map of where to find it on the web. Why? I demanded, stiff with indignation and outrage. How could you do that to me? She shrugged, smiling. It was painless, and it qualified me as a beta tester. They want people to test the process on as soon as possible. If you're terminal, you move to the top of the list. This is the most selfish thing you've ever done. I'll live forever. Perhaps someday you'll join me. Never. This is just a ploy for attention. You won't go through with it. Like it or not, I'm dying, Arwen. I slammed the door after me, marched away stiff with indignation. Back at the church, they surrounded me with love and sympathy. I was still new and uncertain in those days, worth special care. Brother Sol himself came to speak with me. We're not responsible for our parents' lives, Annie, he said kindly. He touched my shoulder, smiling at me. I don't know if she would have done it if I wasn't here, I confessed. He shook his head. We decide at the moment of our birth how our lives will be led, whether we know it or not. You have been one of us from the beginning. She has always chosen to die like this. It didn't feel very comforting, but at least it was something. I saw her once again after that, in the hospice, waiting to die. They'd offered her antidotes on to the pain, but she chose not to take them. She said she wanted to store as much of the sensations as possible. She knew who I was, despite the blurring of her vision. I don't have any regrets, she said to me. She tried to reach for my hand, but I kept it by my side. Think of what an adventure it will be. It's not real. Nothing is real, she said. It's your church real or the imaginings of Brother Soul. I turned away and the gaze of the cameras followed me. The room was thick with the smell of disinfectant, which did not mask the stink of the rot's superating sores. I've got to go, I said.
Visiting hours won't be over for another two hours. I can't stay that long. I left without looking back. She was a huge success as an Edison. I watched the broadcast while sitting in the common room, my church members around me. I did not tell them I knew her. The only person I'd confided in was Brother Sol. One of the things I remember, growing up, were the paperback fantasy novels draped over the sofa and on the bathroom counter, limp and as broken birds, their covers were hallucinatory bright. She liked those worlds where everything was simple, everything was good or evil. So her choices as a netizen did not surprise me. You see, the internet is not really a place. It's a collection of servers, the habitable islands floating on its electronic sea. You can't live in that ocean. While NetCorp had its own servers, bland but pleasant sim worlds, the majority of the netizens lived elsewhere, finding alternate servers that accommodated them. My mother inevitably found a MMORPG, a massive multiplayer role-playing game called Elvenfire, run by Fantascape, and took up dwelling there. She called herself Princess Vithika. She had jet black hair, glittering eyes and enormous breasts. She loved it, loved the fame of being one of the game's heroes. Every day she rode out on quest, slew monsters, rescued victims, swapped riddles with sphinxes and gathered gold pieces. She wasn't the only one in that world. Many people love the games. They're a thriving business in items and houses and the most famous of the MMORPGs has an annual GNP that rivals Argentina's. There's a secret to that. The more you play, the more you can make. And Mother was on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Pretty soon, the princess part wasn't hyperbole anymore. She was one of the new net wealthy. She wasn't the only netizen doing it, but she was the only one on Elven Fire and the Fantascape developers catered to her. They built her a castle, gave her automated magical servants, even named a realm after her. She didn't lack for company. The players loved her. And sometimes she would visit the other games to see other netizens. She confided in me that the developers had come up with sex routines that the netizens could use if they'd wanted some intimate time. That's disgusting, I typed. I was logged on from the computer in her condo, going through her clothes to see what should be sold, that what the church might use. I refused to use the audio option. I didn't want to hear her uncannily real voice through the speakers. It was too much. The words appeared on the screen. Just another part of life, Arwen. How is your church? My name is Annie now. Everyone is good. We're going to a demonstration in Washington next week to protest Chinese tariffs. I see Brother Sol has been expanding. He's quite wealthy by now, you know. As wealthy as you? Much more so. You need money, Arwen. If you leave him, I'll support you, you know. I've signed the condo over to you. It's yours to live in. I bet some of those clothes will fit you. No, Mother. I taped a few more boxes shut and dragged them outside where Josh and Jude, two of my brothers in the church, prepared to load them on the truck. I ignored the scrolling text on the screen. She tried to catch my attention by tapping into the apartment's environmental systems, making the light above the computer strobe anxiously. 
but I hit the override and it stopped. The church prescribed visiting your parents once a fortnight. I wasn't sure that my mother qualified. It's not really her, after all. But I did visit in two weeks, logging into a public terminal. I'd given the money from the sale of the condo and her furnishings to Sol, who thanked me with an absent gaze and patted my cheek. Do you feel things in there? I typed. Can't you use the audio, she asked. It's so much faster. Not here. Does it frustrate you? It's inefficient. Do you remember things? Do you remember dying? It was unpleasant. Did it hurt? It was unpleasant. You're a program. You can't feel things, can you? I do. What do you feel? I hurt for you, Arwen. Please. I didn't log off, just walked away. Someone else could come and pretend to be me. She was paying the charges, after all. She was on the news as Princess Vithika. Fanscape was talking, taking her on as a consultant and paying her fees that swelled her fortune. Finally a success. All she had to do was die, it turned out. Sol called me into his office. He folded his hands on the desk, sighing. Bills, 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 he mourned, shaking his head but it's worth all the travail to see how happy the flock is and to know how good works, what good works we do. He eyed me. Are you happy here, Annie? I nodded, but somewhere in my stomach something writhed. I loved the structure of the church, being told what to do and when. You never have to make decisions. Having Sol summon me was unprecedented, but more than that, it broke the routine in the same way the visits to my mother did. It was wrong. He leaned forward, his hands still folded. Is your mother happy? She's just a program, I reminded him. You said that last week. Oh, of course, of course. I meant the thing calling itself your mother. How vile to live in these times. His eyes were hooded, thinking, calculating. Does it still act as though it's your mother? Call you daughter? Celebrate your birthday? Yes, I want you to visit it more often. Find out how it thinks of itself, of you. Move the visits up to once a week. Once a week would make my world fly apart, but I didn't protest. Instead, the choice made for me, I talked to her every week. I tried to make it settle into a routine, a scripted interchange, news of the church, news of elven fire, news of the world, news of the net, but she persisted in making it go array jumping up subjects, topics, always coming up with something new. You never asked, she said, who your father was. I thought you didn't want to tell me. You're a clone, Arwen. I spent all my money trying to fix things that I'd done wrong. Instead, I got a dish rag, a wet dish rag, instead of a child. It's like the things she said when I was growing up, cruel and sharp enough to make the soul bleed. It didn't really register that I'm a clone. It wasn't unusual. There were several in my classes growing up. What mattered was the dish rag. I was one. But I didn't care. I wasn't a dish rag to the church. Listen, she said. They found a way to reverse the netizen process. What? They codify the memories and put them into a body. It has to be compatible, of course. I just want you to be prepared.
prepared. I'm making another clone. I'm coming back. I have the money to do it. I've got a book contract already and the talk shows are interested. I'll have a carer and I'll take care of you, Arwen. I'm Annie, I said. They need a host body for the embryo. I'll pay you well, or your church at any rate. Sol liked the price I named. You want to be born from my body, I said, shocked. Yes, we'll come full circle, you and I, and I trust you to do what's right. We'll have each other. Maybe you won't need the church then. When I confronted Brother Sol, thinking there must be some confusion, I found it was true. It's a simple process, he said, smiling. You'll be well tended. Your mother has made very generous financial settlements. Beyond that, these are unprecedented legal waters. So she's making you her guardian until she comes of age. Good for her. Good for the church. It's all good. He smiled again. I walked away feeling limp and wet. They didn't upload the memories until the fourth month. It was only a small subset of them. What the doctors explained are the core. The embryo can't handle the mass of the rest of them. It meant that she existed in two pieces. She hadn't erased herself from the net yet, although she had transferred her money to me. She had a few months to tie up loose ends on the net, say goodbye to a few people, finish the expansion to elven fire that she was helping design. The baby kicked at night, a hard, insistent kick just behind my ribs. She wouldn't let me sleep. I knew what she was saying. I lay there with my palm pressed to my stomach, feeling the rhythm of her kicks. She didn't stop until I rose, put on clothing and went outside. The garden of the church was walled, but there was a gate out onto the street. I touched my hand to the lock and didn't look back. At the public terminal, I keyed the audio and said, Tell me what to do. This time around, though, I would be the mother. I would be the one in charge. The end. There you go again. Copyright is Cat Rambos and a big massive thank you to Lulu Zal. Just amazing. Thank you so much. What a, a, a lovely voice. Amazing. So we're getting on now to the final story by Cat Rambo. Do you like to say we've had a, like this show is a Cat Rambo special and I'm just so pleased. Cat, thank you so much for letting me use these stories. Do you know what I mean? It really means a lot to us. Thank you so much. This one is called Dagger and Mask and it is by Heidi Hutz. Dagger and Mask by Cat Rambo. If you had asked Edua if he loved Grenya, he would have been indignant. Of course he did. He loved all his targets. Not at first, of course. He was put off. That scar, that murder face, it hurt to look at. It's not an uncommon condition, despite what the Medis would like you to believe. Some people reject plant's flesh. It won't take, won't renew lost skin, won't rebuild damaged features. For some, it even makes things worse. So, with Grania, 
and she hadn't chosen to go the route most people did, some other form of concealment like veils or cloaking devices. Instead, she tattooed borders around the ruined skin, studded it with crystals embedded in the roughened flesh, taking the grotesque damage and turning it into something inhuman and beautiful. Ruin and design mingled until you couldn't tell what was accidental and what was purposeful. Her right eye looked out from that as though pressed against a peephole in order to see the world. It made you wonder what she was trying to say by not covering it up, what she was trying to tell you about herself by not concealing it. What did it mean that she didn't try to hide it? But that was it. That was all she was saying, Edwa realized later, that she didn't hide anything. It would have been wasted energy to her. He came on board at Epsilon 5. Grenya didn't hire him, of course. She had a ship of over 500 members to oversee. So he'd talked to the first officer, who made a perfunctory check of his forged documents, but was more interested in quizzing him to make sure he knew what a Volant engine was. Twenty or so new crew members came aboard the Grail at that station, replacing the attrition of six months wandering along the Kahirli border. Maybe they sent a monitor along with him. Maybe not. Usually they didn't with long-established assassins, ones who had proven themselves before. It didn't take them long to get used to life aboard her ship. Decent food, good working conditions, a happy crew for a change. But he didn't glimpse its captain until over a weekend. A Necrom failed, and he was the only one who knew what to do. None of the others even thought it could go, and so they stood there wide-eyed amid the acrid yellow steam, watching it roil around them until he pushed the chief engineer out of the way and patched the leech collar just in time. Everyone knew they would have been goners without that, and he got a lot more attention from the crew at large than he'd hoped for. But it did what he'd wanted. He met Granya when she came to thank him. Her eyes were gray, not gray as in a lack of color, but a gray that held them all just below the surface, like a bruised opal. She said, Edua, right? You've earned yourself a bonus next time we dock. She reached out, and they shook hands. He tried not to look at the scar at first, but why would you have it if you minded people seeing it? So he did look, stared at the red frilled edge where it began, at the pebbly silvery surface and the facets gleaming on her cheek, at the way it tugged her eye down and the corner of her mouth upward. That was when she first really noticed him. He could tell. Before then, he'd just been a work item to tick off. Thank the crew member who saved the ship. But now he was a person, and she looked back in a way that made him uneasy, as though she were seeing straight through his skin down to the depths of his soul, finding out that he'd sabotaged the Netgrom in the first place, trying to create this moment. But she couldn't have, because she just smiled at him. He ducked his chin triggered the pheromones he prepared. Couldn't do that anywhere but in the close confines of a ship, with the fans in the section being disabled for his repairs while the Necrom was being dismantled. Sometimes he surprised himself with how well he planned. He dared a glance up into those cool gray eyes, wondering what thoughts lurked behind them like sharks below the water's surface. He expected the call before it came, confirming another fragment of his plan had clicked into place. Captain's prerogative, ordering someone to her cabin for mutual recreation. Rarely against someone's will, but that had been known to happen on some ships. Not on this one, though. He'd already noted how carefully it was run. When he'd come on board, they'd promised him a share in the profit, once the six-month probation was over. A kingly offer. No wonder the Grail was hotly sought after as employment. He even had to dispose of some of his competition beforehand. 
He'd hoped for this. Beyond the pheromones ready to dose her again, he had the right chemicals ready to go in his system in case they were needed, in case he was having trouble performing, in case he was put off by that scar, the way it slid across her cheekbone, glinting in the light. To his surprise, there was no problem with his performance at all. Odd for him, who'd eschewed so many pleasant things as part of his determination to succeed. He wasn't celibate, not that, but he'd never played at love and romance the way some did. Sex was a transaction, an exchange of certain intangible or tangible things like touch and attention and sometimes money and sometimes power. Lying in her bed, he wondered if this would give him power, that he'd been here. He thought not. She surely knew better than that, knew that it was a way to make a crew dissatisfied. He thought that if anything, she'd be harder on him as a result of this. He rolled over and touched the scar with his fingertips as she slept. The gray eyes opened, watching him. Was it the scar or amusement that gave her the look of a smile? He had always thought that what he felt for the people he was sent to kill was love. Wasn't that what love was? Attention so close, it could kill you. He helped them find their destiny. He helped them before the people that had sent him could send someone something worse. He spared them pain. Grania made him falter in his convictions. That was new. That was unexpected. And because of that, he toyed with it, savoring the strange sensation of caring. Caring what she thought. Caring what she did. He'd allow himself that, he thought, but only for a little while. He had been sent to kill her, after all. That was his mission. He hadn't known why then, but now that he had been aboard the Grail for a while, he had suspicions. There were powers not interested in letting crew members have expectations of a share in the cargo and its profits, getting ideas above their class. His employers wanted to keep the money where it was, in the hands where it had rested so long. Days working, the occasional night in her cabin. He thought he wasn't the only one, but she was discreet and careful. Sometimes he stared at her closed face, wondering, what was he to her? Convenience? Indulgence? Something else? When he'd first seen the ship, looking out the shuttle window on his way with the other new crew, he thought it looked like a great silvery bird, its wings caught half-rising, half-falling. Cannons bristled along it, but they were small and light, other than the three great lasers that rode the command center, which might have been the bird's head seen from a particular angle. A shiny ship, which he didn't understand then, not until he saw how clean it was inside, until he realized that the crew kept it that way, kept it ready, put in extra hours to do so simply because they loved the ship. Some crew members had lived almost all their lives aboard it, had come in as teens. It made him wonder how old Granny was. It was against human nature, such a ship. She must have come from one of the deprived planets to have such a revolutionary antisocial streak to create an order on her ship that was so unprecedented. But when he asked, the planet she named was small and ordinary, hardly the sort of furnace in which she should have been forged. Maybe it was just the experience of having been born there on an actual planet. He'd been birthed on a crate station himself, ready to go into labor like everyone else. Someone had seen his scores and pulled him out of the general pool destined for the factory worlds. Instead, he'd been trained as a weapon, a dagger to be used. She'd chosen to become what she was. Had he ever been asked if that was what he wanted? He didn't remember it, but surely they must have made sure that he consented to his role. He said to Granya in bed, Aren't you worried going against the flow like this? 
The powers that be don't like the lower classes getting ideas in their heads, and you're the one putting those concepts there, reawakening old and obsolete ideas, making people think they might have a right to profit. It's not fair to lead them on like that. She propped her chin on his chest, considering his face. How do I lead them on? You make promises that no one will ever live up to. I will. It was true. He'd spoken to the other crew who'd been there longer. The share wasn't a false lure, and even more intriguingly, it worked. The invested crew spoke differently of the ship, used a tone he'd never heard before. He found himself cheered by it. He thought about giving up his mission, staying there with her. She'd tire of him soon enough. But here was a place that he might, intriguingly, call home in a way he'd never known any other place. The thought stayed with him, a daydream he could escape into, a garment he could wrap around his mind and relax into. It snuck up on him, began to seem more and more plausible, more and more possible, at least until he returned to his bunk after a shift and saw what lay across his pillow. Anyone else might have mistaken it for a strand of white thread, barely half a meter long, fallen in an odd, knotted pattern. But to someone who could read it, it was a message. There was a monitor aboard watching him. Irritating that someone had thought he might falter or fail. Even more irritating that they'd been right. Maybe Granya had done the same thing he had. Maybe the air here held chemicals to convince him. To make everyone on gullible. To force her crew members to buy into an impossible dream. Because it was impossible. Human nature wasn't compatible with her ideas. It was meaner, smaller than she thought. He had to kill her, or he'd be killed. That was a waste. They'd just send more like him after her. Eventually, they'd win. They had the money, the resources. She had a ship and idealism. He picked up the thread and knotted it around his wrist. Acknowledgement that the message had been read would be heeded. He found himself watching the others who had come aboard the ship when he did, but there was no guarantee the monitor was among them. They could have been placed earlier, when Grania first came to someone's notice. The monitor might be the one who decided to enlist him, even. He didn't like the feeling of being watched. It made him twitchy. It made his skin crawl. It made him look over his shoulder while pretending he wasn't. Another mask to put on, and one the watching monitor would see through effortlessly. Pirates plagued the Gossoff run, but the Grail was ready for them. He knew what to do when the attack alarm shrilled. They all did. They drilled and practiced. He climbed into one of the tiny flyers, more suit than ship, smelling the reek of plastic and hyperfuel, feeling the controls clamp along his arms and legs, and launched himself out into space like the others. A hundred tiny ships, a swarm of them, shot at the pirate vessel coming at them hard and fast, its lasers swiveling, trying to pick them off. But they were too small, too fast. Individually, they could do nothing. But together, they were a force to be reckoned with, strafing the other ship, carving gouges in the sides as they rocketed past. He swooped and gliding, moving almost faster than he could react, frantically monitoring the controls. Someone flashed past, headed straight for the attacking ship. He expected to see the impact. Had, had they miscalculated? Was their suit not working? But they veered away at the last minute, leaving a trail of damage along the ship's hull like a silver scar, taking out two turrets. The pirate had its revenge, though. As the suit pulled away, another laser flash clipped them, sent them spiraling in a pinwheel of limbs. He barely managed to change course to intercept the tumbling form, caught them in his arms as he'd been taught, a hard jolt that would leave them both bruised. Saw the gray eyes through the faceplate searching his, 
Through the thick glass, the scar gleamed like mercury on her skin, dotted with color. He'd known she might be out there. Knew they all risked themselves for the ship, but he thought that was a sham, that she'd stay back. Her presence, only a token. That there would be some small things in which she'd prove hypocritical. Wrong again. He remembered the feel of the thread around his wrist, remembered how it bit as it had tightened. When he returned to his bunk, another thread lay there. Scarlet now. If he didn't kill her soon, he would be killed. That would be no good. They'd only send someone else. His life would be wasted. Pointless. He lay down on his bunk, thinking, winding the thread back and forth through his fingers, feeling it drag against calluses. Calluses he'd acquired while working here on this ship. He'd never had calluses like that before, except from weapons practice, working to shape himself, not working to make a home. What if he told her how he had been sent? What if he asked her aid and promised her he would be her weapon now? He could return to those who had sent him. Return and do what needed to be done to save her. The thought terrified and exhilarated him. He could remove his mask. He could be himself. No longer someone who changed themselves to fit from role to role. What would that be like? He wondered who he would become if he allowed himself. With her encouragement, he could be someone different. Dangerous. He'd tell her there was a monitor. They'd have to act carefully and lure them out. With her help, though, he could do that, perhaps. His stomach churned as he thought, and as he tried to pick from the whirl of possibilities. At least if he'd died that way, he would have tried. Did that matter? It seemed as though it should, but often things were not as they seemed. She must feel some loyalty to him, some tie. He dosed her with the pheromones every chance he got, touched her arm to rouse the oxytocin, used every trick he could. But she was so reserved, kept herself so well hidden. Was the scar a mask, something you'd look at rather than seeing deeper? By now, he loved it. Could have drawn its outlines. Could have told you how many of each color gem spangled in a complicated constellation across the ruined skin. Would she listen? Any other captain would kill a spy on their ship. Would do so instantly in case of a triple cross. Do it before the spy might have a chance to get a coded message squeal out before any damage could be done. He had drawn the string so tightly around his fingers that it was cutting into the skin. The pain made him sit up. He swung his legs off the bunk. He talked to her. That was the only choice. But standing outside her cabin, he heard voices. Had she brought someone else to her bed? The thought brought an unexpected tightness to his chest. He cursed his weakness. There was no reason to give his mission this kind of mind. He must kill her and escape. Must get off this ship that so deranged him. The door slid open, and the first officer exited, barely sparing him a glance. Not sex, then. His muscles loosened, then tightened again as he told himself that he couldn't give way to a false sentimentality. Mustn't buy into a future that couldn't exist. That was entirely imaginary. That could never be realized. His preferred weapon lay inside his own body, a sliver of poisoned steel that could slide through skin and into another's brain or heart. It was ready now. He could feel it lying along his forearm as she beckoned him in. You've saved my life twice now, she told him. Her hand cupped his cheek. He closed his eyes, swallowing. Now would be the time to speak, the time to reveal himself. But the moment was past. She was drawing him to bed. 
It was a different moment now. The steel throbbed deep under the surface, and he could feel muscles flexing, ready to act. Strike fast, strike now, before regret overtook him and made him slow. Strike before the gray eyes opened and saw what he was doing. The steel slid out, and the eyes, open and regarding him, were cool, calm, and strong. Before he could step forward, something clamped down on his spine. He wasn't able to move, falling forward on the cool metal of the floor. His eyes, unable to close, watched as she removed the filters from her nose, watched as she came nearer. His throat was constricted as he tried to ask how and why and when she'd known. But the world shrank to her unreadable expression, to her hand, then the circle of the gun's muzzle as she fired and then he was gone. She suspected what he'd try when he came on board, Grania thought as she pressed the call button. She'd known when the Netgrom failed. He hadn't been the first. He wouldn't be the last. Sometimes they wait long enough that her hopes are roused, that she thought they might come over to her. That was when she tested them with the thread. She was sorry for this, a little at least. She'd had hopes for Edwa. Now she'd have to try again, try tricks of touch and trust-building hoping that eventually an assassin would waver, switch his or her allegiance, become the dagger she'd use against the forces opposing her. If you had asked Granya if she'd loved Edua, she would have been indignant. She did. Certainly, she did. But not enough to stay her hand. The End <laughs> There you go. That is Starship Sova Put to Bed. Cat, well, again, what can I say? Thank you so much. Again, don't forget that one is Cat as well. No going out there and steely, steely, pinchy, pinchy. And Heidi, what can I say? Lovely narration. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So that is the end of this show. I hope you enjoyed it. It's been lovely to kind of do a special on a, a you know, like in a, a writer and a writer of that calibration as well, Cat Rambo. Thank you so much. Jeremy, that was fantastic. Well done, well thought out, put to bed. That's lovely, excellent stuff. So that is this show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do pop around next week for some more. And, you know, I mean, you've got your new little toys there. Subscribe to the show. That would be fantastic. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuum procedure initiated. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. 
Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.